0: Lord, we we are thankful for um, all that you give to us. And even as Tim reminded us this morning, uh, we're not just thankful for what we have, but Lord, we are thankful uh, for you who gives us all good things. And so even as we uh, step into 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this morning, I pray that we would come into this passage with a heart of thankfulness, a heart that recognizes our complete dependence on you. And Lord, even in our dependence, you're not stingy, but you are generous. You give uh, extravagantly to us. And so would we then demonstrate that same extravagance in our own lives? It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Well, we are coming to the end of our time in 1 Corinthians. And if you've been following along with us, uh, if you've been kind of here throughout this series, you may feel like, man, it seems like it's been over a year that we've been in 1 Corinthians. And uh, that's probably because we've actually been in 1 Corinthians for over a year. Uh, And so your feelings are warranted. Uh, But throughout this series, of course, we have taken uh, a few breaks. We've talked about a lot of different things. And in fact, we just recently took a break to talk on eschatology and the end times. And that was actually partly to prepare us to go back into 1 Corinthians. We went into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and in that chapter, Paul hits on a lot of big concepts related to eschatology. He talks about um, Christ's return. He talks about our future resurrection. He talks about our glorified body, so a lot of big topics as it relates to the end times. And so, when we start uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, it can, it can probably feel like Paul is really starting to kind of wind things down now. You know, he's really, the plane is kind of descending uh, because he's talking about what seems to be more minor or, or more uh, in, insignificant kind of concepts, like, you know, his travel plans or giving within the church and maybe you've written an email or a letter like that where you're typing uh, kind of the main body of the text, you've got a lot of important things to say, you've got a lot of questions to address, and you get to the end of that email or that letter, and you realize, oh, I've left out a few things, and so those things kind of become shoved in towards the end of that email, right? A sort of kind of an, an afterthought or a postscript. But I want to encourage us this morning to actually Push against that tendency of seeing this chapter, 1 Corinthians 16, as less significant or disconnected from the previous chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. And instead, I actually want to encourage us to apply a principle that we've been preaching throughout these last several weeks when we've been talking about eschatology. And that principle is our view of the future should affect our view of the present. So I don't think that Paul is seeing his statements in chapter 16 as disconnected from his statements in chapter 15. But he's saying that because there is a future resurrection of the saints, because there's been a resurrection of Christ, because Jesus is going to return, because he's coming back, our response should be in the present a greater faithfulness. We should care more about the condition of the world and the people around us, not less. So Paul, when he goes from these kind of uh, these big concepts about the last days to the topics of 1 Corinthians 16 that we'll actually start looking at this morning, he's not seeing these two sections as disjointed. But I'd argue that one is meant to inform the other and one is meant to inspire the other. So as we enter into uh, this last chapter of 1 Corinthians and we focus really specifically on the topic of giving and the, uh, the church collection this morning, I don't want us to leave eschatology back behind us in the series that we just wrapped up. But instead, I want us to actually do what Paul does, which is bring eschatology into the everyday moments and practices of the church so let's understand that even as we reach into our pockets or reach into our wallets in order to give financially to the needs of the church or the needs of fellow Christians, it's an opportunity for us to remember that this life is important, it's meaningful, it's, it's significant, but it is not ultimate There is a future glory that is coming. There is a future hope that we're looking forward to, and that should be informing how we live in the present. So with that in mind, I really want to, I want to do just three things this morning, and hopefully, I mean, this is a holiday weekend, maybe this will be a shorter sermon, but I don't want to limit the spirits moving. Uh, So uh, I want to do just three things this morning. I want us to look first at the backstory of the collection that Paul references in uh, in verse one of this passage. And then I want to consider just a few principles that are kind of undergirding Paul's uh, directions that he's giving uh, for this collection. And then we're going to conclude by thinking about how the gospel is displayed in our giving. So first then is the backstory to the giving. So we see in verse 3 that whatever money is raised here is intended to go toward the church in Jerusalem. Which means that this is not just kind of a typical collection uh, that Paul is referencing here that would would happen on just any given Sunday in the church at Corinth. So why was this collection necessary in the first place? Why was Jerusalem in need of some kind of special collection uh, that was being gathered by churches even outside of, of their own body? Well, there's really three reasons, or at least possibilities. I don't want to be too dogmatic here, but, but, but three potential reasons just based on kind of the historical and biblical evidence that we can kind of summarize and, and, and think about how that would be affecting the church in Jerusalem. So the first reason, and you'll see why this is important in just a second, but the first reason is that Jerusalem, just as a city by itself, was actually a very poor city at this time, at this point in history. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for Jews of the day who were living outside of Jerusalem to actually send money into Jerusalem, whether that was to the city itself or to specific Jewish people that were uh, living in the city. And they would do that, one, so that people could survive, right, so they could buy the things that they needed in order to live, but even so that the economy as a whole would not collapse in the city. And so the response of the Jerusalem church to this poverty, their specific response had actually been to sell everything that they owned, and redistribute it among themselves. And we can actually read about that practice happening early on in the church. Uh, it happens in Acts chapter 4. That they had been selling everything. They had been giving the proceeds to the elders. And the elders had been distributing these, these goods and the money among the church equally. And that had proved really to be a, a fairly effective method up until this point. Of combating the widespread poverty that was, uh, that was common throughout Jerusalem. But exacerbating that issue uh, was that Christians were also experiencing extreme persecution by the Jewish community. That's the second reason or the second kind of uh, influence that would be going into this, this need for the Jerusalem church to have funds. And we even see, and I think this is interesting, we even see in Acts chapter 8 that Paul... Before he's actually converted to Christianity is actually someone who is instigating or kind of initiating this persecution against the church at Jerusalem. And so it's a little bit ironic that by the time you get to 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, and he's saying we need to be part of the solution to the church in Jerusalem experiencing extreme poverty because he has actually at some point in time been a contributing factor in that poverty itself. And so, of course, all of this, all of this persecution, Uh, persecution that that, uh, the church is experiencing in Jerusalem meant more poverty and loss of income, and there was a greater need that was rising in the church because of that. But the final reason for this collection, and really maybe the most significant reason, was that the Great Famine was happening at this time. It was happening from AD 45 to 8063, it was a, it was a significant famine in history that was sweeping across not just Jerusalem but the greater area around Jerusalem, as well. And there were a lot of issues that were kind of causing this famine. But in general, grain was in short supply. And even those who had access to grain, of course, it was incredibly expensive. In some cases, it was triple or quadruple its normal price. And so, if you think that inflation is bad now. Just think about back then where you're having to pay four times the amount of money just in order to buy food, just in order to feed your family. Now, here's why I think this backstory is important. I don't want it just to be kind of, you know, a fun, a fun fact. But there's a common belief within Christianity, or at least some circles, some communities within Christianity, that if you're faithful and obedient To God, if you just do what God has told you to do, then He's going to show His appreciation for you by making you healthy, wealthy, and wise. But as you look at this community of Christians in Jerusalem, we see that many of them are, in fact, not healthy, wealthy, and wise. In fact, most of them, if not all of them, were starving we're poor, and by many people's opinions, we're foolish. And and that reality is the direct result of their faithfulness, not their faithlessness. And what's also significant is that the response by fellow Christians is not just prayer where they're praying, you know, God, would would you change the Jerusalem church's circumstances, would you ease their burdens or would those be reversed or go away? But it's a response of tangible generosity that's going to be felt by those who are being affected by everything that's going on in the city of Jerusalem. And as I was thinking about that backstory and even the implications of that, I thought, man, what a practical model for us to consider, what a a practical story for us to consider as we just last week wrapped up REACH, and as we prepare even throughout the month of December for our Christmas offering, what a great example we see in the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul of what it looks like to respond to the needs of the global church with eagerness, with grace, and with charity. And so even in what's happening behind the scenes of this passage, we haven't, even, we haven't even really gotten to the passage itself yet, but even what's happening behind the scenes in the passage, there is a challenge for us to consider today. How can we emulate the uh, Corinthians' generosity? How can we emulate and tangibly show support of God's mission and God's people? How can we use our financial resources to encourage and assist brothers and sisters in Christ, even those who are not near us, but who are actually far away from us. And so that's that's the backstory to what's going on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So next then, I want to just look at the principles that Paul is kind of operating from in his instructions. And I'm using that word principles actually intentionally here because I, I don't think that um, Paul's words or instructions here in verses one through three are necessarily intended to be seen as commands by all people at all times. And the reason that I think that is because Paul is responding here to a, a specific question, a specific concern from the uh, from the Corinthians regarding a specific donation that's being made. And that donation, again, we've said is beyond just the normal giving of the church. He's not He's not just talking about the general practice of giving or uh, the, the general practice of taking up an offering in the worship service. We know that Paul is responding to a specific question or a specific situation because he starts off the passage with these two words that are actually important. He starts, uh, starts off the passage by saying, now concerning. And the reason that's significant is because throughout 1 Corinthians, he's used that phrase exclusively when he's addressing or he's answering a previous question or concern that's already been raised by the Christians in Corinth in the the previous letters or the previous conversation that they've written to him. In other words, I don't think that Paul is providing an exhaustive theology on giving in general. And I don't think that his instructions are prescriptive for every single time we give financially to the church. However, I do believe that what Paul says here in verses one through three is inspired. And not only that, it's rooted in biblical wisdom, which means that we shouldn't just ignore it, right? We shouldn't just look at it and say, "Well, that's a very contextual kind of situation, and there's really nothing for us to consider in that. Uh, it's just kind of a blip in the in the storyline. Of history and act like it has no relevance for our lives today. Because if we interpret this passage as it's actually meant to be interpreted, then we'll see that Paul's contextual instructions, because they are contextual, are flowing out of universal principles that should absolutely shape, it should absolutely determine how we participate financially in the body of Christ. And so there are five principles this morning. We're going to go through them uh, somewhat quickly. So here's the first one. Here's the first principle that uh, that Paul gives us. Give regularly. Give regularly. So Paul says at the beginning of verse 2 that when the Corinthians give to this Jerusalem donation, they're to give, he says, on the first day of every week. Okay, why is Paul so particular about the specific day that the Corinthians are to actually set money aside for this donation that's going to go toward uh, the the Jerusalem church? Well, there are a, a few theories. There's a few answers to that question. But the one that I personally favor is that Paul is making a direct connection between the formal worship of the church and then formal giving in the church. So after Christ's resurrection, which took place on a Sunday, um, that's why Easter is on a Sunday. Um, So after Christ's resurrection that happened on a Sunday, the pattern of corporate worship among Christians actually changed. It shifted from Saturday, which of course was when Jews would have celebrated the Sabbath, and it shifts from Sunday then to the first day of the week or I'm sorry, it's just from Saturday to the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And even though as we read this passage, we'll see that Paul is uh, not actually telling the Corinthians to uh, bring their gifts to the gathering each week. So again, this isn't, this isn't a formal weekly collection per se in the corporate worship. What he is saying is that there is a relationship that exists between formal worship and formal giving in the Christian life. Because as we gather together each week, what we're ultimately saying in our time together is that God is supreme. He is greater than me. He has authority over me. He's worthy of all that I am, all of me. And that includes not just the inner parts of who I am, that even includes the possessions that I have to my name. So there's a reason why we gather every single week as a church. There's a, a reason why in the book of Hebrews we're told not to neglect the gathering of the saints, the regular gathering of the saints. It's because we regularly and we constantly need this reminder in our lives week after week after week that we are not ultimate beings in the universe. We are not the ones who have ultimate authority over our lives and everything that happens in our lives. And just the same, our possessions and our resources, our money, our financial uh, standings don't exist in order to fund our own little kingdoms and dreams. So just like worship needs to be a regular habit of the Christian, so also giving needs to be a regular habit. And what better uh, time, Paul is saying, than on the day that we already set aside to remember that God is God and we are not. So that's the first principle. We should give regularly. Second, then, we should give universally. We should give universally. So in the, in the very next part of verse 2, Paul says to the Corinthians, Each of you is to give. Now, like I said already, we don't have an exhaustive theology on giving in this passage. I don't think that's what Paul is trying to present here in 1 Corinthians 16. But look with me really quickly in 1 John 3, uh, verses 16 through 17. And it'll actually be on the screen here, so you don't have to to turn to it. Uh, But in this this passage, we're going to see why Paul is so sweeping in terms of who it is that's supposed to be participating in this giving. So 1 John 3, it says, by this, we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, if you want to see how much the love of God has actually been realized in a person, look at how generous they are with their possessions. If you want to see the condition of someone's heart and how much it's been transformed by the love of God that's been displayed on the cross, look at the way they handle their finances. Because money, First John is saying, is a mirror that reflects the desires of the heart. And so an appropriate question for us to ask ourselves in light of First John, and even really in light of this season that we are in, where we've just kind of, we're, we're winding down towards a month that is is literally becoming overwhelmed with the idea of accumulating more things, of getting the best deal, and buying more and more nice things to fill our nice homes with. An appropriate question for us to ask ourselves is, are the investments that we make the checks that we write, the money that we spend, is all of that being done in order to demonstrate the love of God more clearly in the lives of those around us? Or are all those things being done in order to demonstrate a love for ourselves? What is the motivation behind how we spend our money? Is it an outflowing of the generosity that we've received, that we've, we've experienced through the love of God, so much so that we are eager to be generous to those around us, to demonstrate how the love of God has invaded our hearts, how it's brought us to a generous spirit or is our motivation to build up our own kingdoms with what we want, what we desire, and to invest in our own happiness and contentment with the things of this world? Giving, not accumulating, is a natural consequence of the gospel being realized in our lives. The two cannot be uh, separated, is what, is what Paul is saying, is what First John is saying. And uh, even as uh, Adrian Rogers said, who's, uh, I actually don't know if he's still alive, but uh, at one point he said, a faith that hasn't reached your wallet probably hasn't reached your heart. So giving is a universal call for Christians because giving is a universal sign of God's love taking root in our hearts. All right, well, third, the third principle We should give not just regularly, not just universally, but we should give systematically. That's the third principle. So Paul goes on in verse 2 to say that the Corinthians in their giving should then put something aside and store it up. And again, this putting aside or this saving up is supposed to be a regular, uh, even a weekly habit, according to, uh, to what he already said, according to what we already read. Now, based on this phrase and based on the way that it's written, it seems to make the most sense that Paul, again, he's not calling the Corinthians to actually literally every single week bring their contributions, bring their, uh, their donation to the weekly gathering. Instead, what he's saying is that every single week, each person is to intentionally, purposefully, systematically set aside funds And they can do that even in the privacy of their own home so that when the time comes, they can bring the sum of their donation and deposit it into the larger corporate collection for the Jerusalem church. Okay, why is this important? Well, what Paul is attempting to instill in uh, these Christians in Corinth is that even though the money is still in their possession, even though it's You know, it's not in some kind of corporate lockbox at this point. But even though the money is still in their possession, the money does not belong to them. It's being set aside. It's being stored up for the building up of God's church. And as I thought about that, a a story from my life came to mind a few years ago. Uh, Abby and I were living in Columbus. We were, well, I was working at a church uh, in Ohio and, uh, and I, was, I was doing an internship there. And during the internship, I got the opportunity to attend a, a denominational conference that this church was a part of. And one of the mornings of that conference, I was sitting down at a table for breakfast. And at that same table sitting next to me was one of the uh, financial officers of the denomination. He was overseeing um, some, some fairly large accounts for the church. He was overseeing uh, the denomination's kind of loan program for uh, building and expanding churches. He was overseeing uh, the retirement plans of pastors that were within the denomination. So, this guy uh, was well educated, right? He was well experienced. And I thought, man, what a great opportunity for me to ask this kind of person uh, hey, what should I be doing with my money now? How should I be investing my money now uh, and kind of get ahead? On, uh, on things like retirement, you know, I'm young, I don't have a lot of money to my name, but how do I, I jumpstart that process? And so I asked him that and he said, mm, yeah, that's a really good question. Man, that's such an important question. Let me think about that and can I get back to you? So I said, no, absolutely. No, I'm just kidding. I said, yeah, that's fine. And, uh, and so the next morning, we ended up actually uh, sitting at the same, the same table again. he said, hey, I thought more about your question. And, and uh, here's my answer. You should start investing your money in the church because it's the only investment that's guaranteed to have eternal gains. And, uh, and at the time, I thought, that's terrible advice. That is not – I thought – I thought you were going to say like invest in apple stock or something um, or like Bitcoin. man, if I had just invested in Bitcoin a few years ago, I wouldn't be working here no, I'm just kidding. Um, so what I'm just kidding what the, Chris isn't here, uh, don't tell him. Um, what what that man was trying to get me to realize though was the same thing that Paul was trying to get the Corinthians to realize, which is just because you have money doesn't mean that it's yours. We are not owners. We are stewards. And as stewards, we need to plan intentionally and systematically how we'll use what's been entrusted to us for the purpose of accomplishing God's will and God's plan. Okay, so just two more principles here then. Fourth, related to the idea of giving systematically, we should also be giving proportionately. We should be giving proportionately. Paul says that all the Corinthians give is to be done in proportion to what they have. Read uh, the beginning of verse 2 with me again. He says, uh, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Or the CSB translates it, in keeping with how he is prospering. In other words, biblical generosity is not a flat rate tax. We, we love to, okay, you say I'm supposed to give, how much should I give, right? We love to, we love to get into the technicalities. Tell me how much is enough, and that's what I'll give, and I'll, I'll fulfill my quota that week or that month, and then I can check the box. But instead, biblical generosity uh, uh, is considering All that God in his sovereignty has given you, specifically you, and in your abundance, we are supposed to wisely determine how liberal, not how conservative, but how liberal you can be in your giving. Now, some of you hear this, some of you are thinking about this principle this morning, and it's actually discouraging to you to think about giving proportionally to what you are receiving because you say, man, I know that I cannot give very much, or at least I know that I can't give as much as a lot of the people around me. And let me just encourage you with the words uh, of Jesus in Luke chapter 16. He says in verse 10 and 11, he says, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? Here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to be generous, generosity is not measured in dollars. It's measured in faithfulness. So give faithfully according to how God has prospered you. Finally then, the last principle. We should give not just regularly, not just universally, not just systematically or proportionately, but then we should give freely. We should give freely. So Paul wraps up verse 2 saying this. Uh, He says, All the instructions that he's been giving at this point are so that there will be no collecting when I come. That's the end of verse 2. So Paul's intention with providing all of these instructions, all of these directions as it relates to uh, kind of accumulating these donations for the Jerusalem church are... Not so that he can he can guilt people or he can manipulate people into giving, but his hope is that there would be such a freedom, such a response of generosity uh, toward the needs of the Jerusalem Church that by the time he comes to collect what's being actually given, there would be no need for any further collecting. That in freedom all of the Corinthians would be giving so lavishly, so extravagantly, that there would be no follow-up. There would be no more uh, kind of guilting. There would be no more direction. There would be no encouragement, uh, no more encouragement to give. And we see this principle of giving freely actually throughout the New Testament, where the quality of giving is never really measured in the quantity of giving, but instead it's measured by the quality of a person's heart when giving giving. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is going to, uh, he's actually going to come back in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to this Jerusalem donation. Okay, so this is not the last time that we'll hear about it in the New Testament. And in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 9, uh, he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, God doesn't love an influential giver. He doesn't love a public giver. He doesn't love a hesitant giver. He loves a cheerful giver. In other words, God does not love when you give. God loves when you love to give. And when we finally realize that none of what we actually have is truly ours, none of what we have really, truly legitimately belongs to us, then there is a freedom that we experience that allows us to actually enjoy giving what we have away. And God loves to see when we've come to that point in our lives as a Christian, when our when our faith has grown to such an extent that we finally realize All that we have, all that we are, is ultimately meant to be a sacrifice given to God. And however he wants me to use it, however he calls me, whatever situations and circumstances he brings before me that would allow me to give of myself, I am with joy going to respond in generosity. And so, friends, do not rob yourselves of that joy, but give freely. Well, with the rest of our time this morning, I want to just briefly consider then how the gospel is displayed in our giving. And the first thing that I want to point out is in verse 3. Paul says, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you are credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting about this statement is that the word gift that Paul uses Toward the, uh, toward the end of this verse, verse three, it's more literally translated as the word grace. And that is not by accident that Paul is kind of mincing words here. In fact, Paul carries over his use of this word into 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which we've already said is kind of part two of his instructions and uh, in his teaching regarding this Jerusalem donation. And in the first verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says that the Christians in Macedonia, so another church, another group of Christians, are also giving financially to this uh, Jerusalem campaign. And in in their giving, they haven't just given money, they've actually given the grace of God. That's what the first verse says in 2 Corinthians 8. And it's the same grace then that Paul calls the Corinthians to excel in in verse 7 of that same passage. So what does it look like to excel in the kind of grace giving that Paul is talking about here in both 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? Well, the answer is in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8. So he says, you know grace. You've seen grace. You know what it is. How do you know it? Because you've seen it. He says, in our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Here's what Paul is saying. The measure by which you give should be the same measure by which Jesus gave himself on the cross. If Christ, who rightly had everything, everything was given to him, he had authority over it all. If Christ was willing to lay down all his authority and power in order to make wealthy those of us who were poor spiritually, How much more should we, who are worthy of nothing, who deserve nothing that is given to our name, how much more should we give everything for the sake of others? Giving is an opportunity for us to remind ourselves and to remind others of the beauty and sacrifice that's been demonstrated in the gospel. And so let's not withhold our possessions from one another, or from God. Instead, let's actually give, and let's give regularly, let's give universally, systematically, proportionately, let's give freely, knowing that our true wealth will never be fleeting earthly treasures. That our true wealth does not lie in the possessions of this life in this world, but Our our wealth is secured once and for all in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in your generosity, Lord, you gave extravagantly, that you did not withhold, but that you give us this grace upon grace upon grace and so I pray that through your spirit, then you would bring us to a point this morning that we would also give in, in a similarly uh, generous, sacrificial way that demonstrates the generosity you've displayed on the cross, and that we would celebrate the wealth that we experience through Jesus. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.